I guess if something's too hard, you run away. So if you run away in your brain, somebody has to be there. You can't run away. So you leave someone behind who has to deal with it. They are swallowing all your trauma. And until you deal with them, they are representing you as a five, seven, whatever year old boy being hurt in a bedroom. They're not gonna be good at helping a 49 year old man get through the world. Welcome to Are You Mental, a podcast about mental health. My name is Mick Andrews, and today we're doing a deep-ish dive into trauma and PTSD. Now, this is a huge topic, and you'll notice that this episode is longer than my others. Even so, it is, of course, impossible to cover everything. We're going to hear from a couple of really brave and open friends of mine talking about trauma they've been through and the PTSD they've experienced since. I do really want to stress that there are as many possible responses to trauma as there are people, and today you'll only hear two people's stories. However, with PTSD, it's not a complete mystery. There are patterns and common experiences, and we're lucky enough to have our psychologist Nettie back to unpack this with us. When Nettie and I were chatting in the cafe before the interview, she introduced me to this concept of little t trauma and big t trauma. Now, little t trauma can be all sorts of negative experiences that have had a significant impact on our lives, including systemic prejudice. However, big T trauma, or what some people call psychological trauma, is a more specific negative experience that involves a serious threat to your safety or your body or to someone close to you, and it's usually experienced as overwhelming or even unbearable. And it's this big T trauma that I'm focusing on today. And one thing that Nettie really wanted to stress to me is that the amount and the type of little t traumas we've had in our life can affect how we respond to a big t trauma and can be a factor in whether we develop PTSD. Confused? Don't worry, it's not all as heady as that. Before we kick off, this episode does come with a trigger warning. We'll talk about sexual trauma, there'll be mention of suicide, and a handful of F-bombs. Listener discretion is advised. With that in mind, let's get on with it. When I was a teenager in Auckland, Aotearoa, I had a great group of friends. We were high on sugar-filled drinks and hormones, and we'd all just got our driver's licenses. So we'd whip around getting up to a disappointingly small amount of mischief that often involved things like torches and sand dunes. And one of those friends was Antonia. Yeah, I was trying to work out when we saw each other, it would have been... Oh gosh, honestly. Little teenagers, I reckon. I've since worked out that it's been 24 years since I've seen Antonia. She sounds basically the same, but with an edge of an Aussie accent after 22 years of living in the Gold Coast. In fact, that's where she was when we chatted. I sent her a microphone and left it to her and her husband Ben to set it up. No, he wants mine to be that loud. Oh, let's say yours is going yeah. to his. Yeah. Okay. Does that sound any better? Oh, shit. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Blowing my eardrums out now. Yeah, okay. Maybe turn it down a bit. <laughs> <laughs> when we finally got the tech sorted, I got her to tell me a little bit about herself. I'm 42. Um, my husband and I own a business and I'm just mum as well. And that's probably what how I feel is my biggest and most important role. But, you know, when you're a mum, your heart's never your own. So... What your children go through, you go through. 
Antonia became a mum not long after I knew her, at the age of 21. Kyan was one of those children that always had the biggest, cheekiest smile on his face. Butter wouldn't melt in his mouth. He could get away with anything. The boy with the cheeky grin grew up to be a young man with a cheeky grin. And one morning in 2018, when he was 18, he woke up late for work. And he was in a rush. I was still in bed. This was five in the morning. I heard the front door with him leaving. And I, it crossed my mind of, you know, the t- typical worry, like, oh, it's raining. I hope he's going to be okay on the roads. And maybe five minutes later, my phone rung. And I answered it, and it was Kyan. And he said, Mum, I've just had an accident. Come here quickly. There's blood everywhere. And so I said, where are you? And he was literally around the corner from home. Hmm. So I have never gone so fast. I was in my pajamas. I didn't think of anything. I didn't even say what was happening to my husband, Ben. I just got up, grabbed the keys and ran and got to him. And I saw what had happened. So he had slid out, lost control, and hit a power pole. He, I said, has anyone stopped or helped? And he said, someone's rung an ambulance. So looking at the condition Kyan was in, I knew it was critical. And so I rung the ambulance straight away myself. And I said, where are you? And they said, somebody's called about this accident. And they've said, he has a sore eye. I said, he does not have a sore eye. He has a critical head injury. He's bleeding out of his ear. And so then it was a different tune. So what had happened is he actually, when he slid out and hit the pole, with the impact, his head went through his window of the driver's door. So his head had that full impact. So it had actually taken off half his ear. His ear was hanging off and his face was completely cut up. But my main thing that I had somehow learnt was about the bleeding out of the ear meant brain injury. And so I thought, this is bad. This is really bad. The ambulance finally turned up got Kyan inside, and started working hard to stabilise him. I said, is he going to be okay? Knowing that they couldn't answer, but I just wanted some reassurance, I guess. And Uh. their words were just the worst. They said, we are just doing all we can. And the fact that they couldn't say he's going to be okay, like for me, I just knew that there's a chance that he's not going to come out of this. He was shutting down rapidly and they couldn't stabilise him. The bottom of the ambulance was just a pool of his blood and everything was just going pear-shaped. And then they moved me to the front seat and I said to the driver, we need to leave, he needs to be at the hospital. And she said, he's got a better chance of survival if we can get him stable here before we arrive. Mm. I said, but he, he's not becoming stable. Like, I can't lose my child. And she radioed and then we were on our way. 
Um, halfway there, she, she, you know, the ambulance driver was just amazing. She was like step by step telling me everything that was ahead of me. So she said, when we get to the hospital, we're going to go into a room. There's going to be between 20 and 30 medical staff and it's going to feel very overwhelming, but they are all there to save your son. And it was so overwhelming. So they moved me out of the room and they sort of pulled the curtains, but I could see them getting all the resuscitation stuff and oh, it was just bad. Like um, Ben had followed in the car, so he arrived shortly after and then they escorted us away and they put us in a room which is, you know, it's a hot, it's a room you'd never want to go in because that's the room they sort of tell you the bad news and they sent the social worker in and and at that stage I was like, I don't really want to see you right now <laughs> because, uh-huh. yeah, I don't want to be told any of this news. Hours passed before Antonia and Ben were informed that the medical team had managed to stop the bleeding, but they weren't aware of the extent of the injury, whether he'd lost his sight, lost his hearing, or had brain damage. And so it was, yeah, just sit and wait. And then... I don't know even how much time had passed. A doctor came in and said, well, you should be buying a lotto ticket because (laughs) there's no fractures, there's no bleeding, there's no, your whole body has just, apart from, you know, the cuts has seemed to have got away with this solid impact. And it was just a miracle, honestly. It was like, just unbelievable yeah yeah and then after that it was um literally just recovery and he healed really quick and bounced back and then it was my time for healing I guess (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah Yeah. because there's a lot of people out there who would think that once you find out that he's okay that then you'd be okay as well and that would be kind of like the end of that journey. But yeah, that yeah. wasn't the case for you, was it? No, um, no. And what, what, were the, what were the weeks and months that followed like? Well, I like a week or two later, we had to go back to his car, which had been removed by a tow truck. And oh, I just, I couldn't handle that because his blood was still all through it and it was like mm-hmm. it took me straight back and I remember the the people at the wreckers they one of the ladies looked at me and she was like what's wrong and I was like oh this is just so hard and she said yes but he's standing next to you he's alive mm-hmm. and yes he was but it was still me so fresh and he nearly wasn't, and I guess my mind was still stuck at how I very, very nearly lost him. It was still so heavy. It was so heavy. So and that did was seeing the car make you like take you straight back to that moment, and did it bring back a lot of the feelings that happened in the very moment? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. You know, I mean, the car was in a different place, but this was the first thing I saw as 
I drove around the corner when I was coming to Kyan. So it was, I guess, a complete flashback. We're going to hear more about the effect the trauma of her son's accident had on Antonia in a minute. But before we do, I want us to start to get an idea of what trauma is. And to help us do that, here's our favourite psychologist, Nettie Cullen, back behind the microphone to help us get our heads around this. It's complicated because trauma is not is not an objective, tangible thing. It's a subjective thing that's experienced. So it's not the it's not an event or a circumstance in itself that is the trauma. It's the impact and the experience of those events on the individual and what it what it stirs up and what it stimulates and what it triggers in a person. That's the trauma. So it sounds like it's quite complicated, but trauma is still a thing, right? A traumatic experience is still different to other experiences in some way, you know? Yeah, a traumatic experience is an experience that pushes us well beyond our comfort zone into a space that feels out of control, overwhelming, unpredictable, extreme. Mm. Challenges our sense of being able to cope and manage and endure something. Mm. Um, We all have a capacity to manage a certain amount of stress or challenge. Mm. When something's pushed beyond what we can manage, that's when something comes into the realm of being traumatic. Mm. So challenging our sense of self, our sense of the world, and our sense of being able to cope in that world. Mm. Hi, it's Mick here. I hope you're enjoying Are You Mental? As you can imagine, making this podcast is a pretty time-consuming pursuit, and I often get asked how people can support the podcast. So what you can do is go to gofundme.com and search the words, Are You Mental? That's gofundme.com and search, Are You Mental? Okay, on with the episode. So are there types of events and experiences that tend to be traumatic? Yeah, so there are certain events that have reasonably predictable impacts and there are things that are threatening, extremely threatening, like threats to life and safety. Mm. So natural disasters, being in an earthquake or, or a fire, violence, acts of violence, accidents where a person's safety and life is threatened or mm. loved one's life is threatened, but also experiences of sexual assault, rape, person-to-person violence. Mm. But even in that, you'll see different responses from one person to the next, depending on their personal, their personal history, what past experiences that they've had that may contribute or inform or resource them, um, what age and stage they are in their life when something like that happens. Something that happens to a very small child has a very different impact to that same thing happening to an adult. So when someone experiences trauma, what's that experience often like for them? The experience of trauma is often described as world shattering. Mm. And what it does is that it, it shatters our perceptions, our worldview, our understanding of how the world operates and my place in it. So it, it has the effect of, 
blowing apart, blowing apart a person's world. My sense of my world and myself in it is altered, broken, shattered, not just shifted, but shattered. And what might we, how might we see the world after a traumatic experience? The most obvious thing is that the world is a dangerous place. So I'm curious to know what what's happening in the body and in the mind during a traumatic experience. Okay, so I, I'm sure everybody's familiar with the idea of there being different regions, different areas of the brain that interact with the world in different ways. So I'm thinking we've got our deeper levels. We talked about lizard brains in our other podcast episode. We talked about lizard brains and we've got our limbic and emotional system and then we've got our higher cortical functions our cortex and the cortex is the piece of our brains that allows us to be rational and logical and reasonable and have perspective so when we experience trauma what happens is that we we click into more of a survival coping state right and what we then take in is a much more primitive experience as well. What gets stored in, in memory, say, is a more visceral and more primitive experience. So that might involve like the senses, sensory stuff. Sensory stuff. And often, often what happens, people talk about being lost for words mm. and it's those capacities, those uniquely human capacities that when we're terrified, abandon us. Mm. It's like a bit of a continuum upon, like along which our, our emotional or psychological state can be from at one end of the spectrum, calm and relaxed through to terror at the other end of the spectrum. Mm. When we are calm and relaxed, all the different areas of our brain are accessible to us, and especially the cortex, especially that capacity to, to think and reflect and rationalise and be creative and all of that kind of stuff. Which is but, why, like, as, as a creative person myself, I often have my best ideas in the shower. Yeah. Is it that kind or of thing? That kind of thing. Or when we're sleeping or mm. dreaming, mm. you know, there, there's, we have access when we're in that state of rest. We have, we're not defensive and we have access to those higher cortical functions. If something a bit novel, something a little bit different happens, it's not stressful as such, but it, it stimulates me to be a little bit more alert. And I might start looking around a little bit more, tuning in a little bit more, and basically being slightly more wired. So as that escalates, so does my state of psychological arousal. Mm. And I might move from a, from a place of being alert to getting alarmed mm. and starting to, to worry and feel anxiety about what's, what's going on. So as I'm getting more alarmed, my responses are becoming more emotional and less logical and reasonable. Mm, makes sense. If I move from alarm into fear and then into terror, mm. the responses in my brain are becoming more and more primitive, less sophisticated and complicated or complex when it comes to thinking rationally and logically and more basic and about survival and about doing whatever I need to do to get, get through, through this. Yeah. 
And so my brain is going through that process and activating my whole system, which includes my body. So heart rate changes, respiration changes. So, so the brain in when it starts to experience goes from alarm to fear to even terror it gets more and more primitive it's using its primitive circuitry more yes, yes which as you describe explains what we are likely to do in those times so what is the brain unable to do in those times in those moments the brain's not interested in anything beyond that present moment and what the brain's not able to do is effectively form a coherent narrative that's woven through time. Hmm. We are unable to form memories in the way that we do when we're calm and relaxed or alert even. Hmm. So as our, as our brain circuitry becomes more primitive, we become less able to tell time. And what I mean by that is place these stories in the context of a broader life story. So this is how we might experience trauma. But here's Nettie again talking about when trauma becomes PTSD. When post-traumatic stress turns into post-traumatic stress disorder, it's to do with the length of time, how, how enduring those experiences or effects are for someone. You know, I might experience, I might be in a car accident or something like that, and it's traumatic, and I take a while to process it and get over it, but I get over it and it doesn't stick and stay with me. Mm. That's not PTSD. When it sticks and stays with me and, and there are some of these identifiable kind of clusters of experiences, that's when it seemed to become PTSD. One of the biggest things that I sort of noticed, and so did Ben, the sort of few weeks to the month afterwards, our memory was just wiped. Not of the accident. I could tell you, like, what shoelaces everybody was wearing that day. Like, But afterwards, so, you know, I'd be in the middle of a conversation with someone and I'd be, I'd be talking in the middle of a sentence and then... I'd stop and it's wiped. I'd have no idea what I was saying. It was just, it just complete, it felt like amnesia. And same with Ben, he had the exact same thing. We own our own business. So he rung up people that he was meant to be going to do quotes and things for. And he said, you know, we'll reschedule the time. Well, he rung all of those people back and pretty much said the exact same thing. And they said, they all said, yeah, you've, you've rung us. Mm. And he had no idea that he'd spoken to them. And then all Ben and I could do was talk about it 24-7 for a long time. It's, there was nothing else we could talk about. It was really strange. You'd talk about, you'd start talking about something else and it would come back to it every time, all day either the rain or, oh, did you notice this part or did you see when this happened? Or it would just be about just the emotion, like it's still so overwhelming and and he'd be like, same. How does your, or how did your memory of that day differ from other memories? You know, what, what, in what way did you remember that day? 
there is no fading of that memory. It is so vivid. It is, you know, I mean, when I was just telling you about it again, it's like visually I can see every single step and part of it, everything, even the ambulance driver's face. Mm. (laughs) And, you know, for someone that you don't know, you don't normally remember them and especially in a moment that's like that but every single part of it is there yeah absolutely still don't like the sound of ambulances in the sense of it's you know it still gives me a bit of a shudder the way her trauma affected antonia's memory is quite common for someone experiencing ptsd But what else does PTSD involve? Well, Nettie describes common PTSD experiences as being grouped into clusters that have been observed among PTSD sufferers worldwide. And one of these clusters is to do with intrusive thoughts. Encapsulating things like nightmares and dreams and flashbacks and reenacting of the event. It's when we replay and relive and re-experience when I am thinking about it when I don't want to be thinking about it in an attempt to make sense of it. And the classic kind of example I think of with something like flashbacks is like probably from movies I've seen is like war veterans. People have been in battle Mm. and they uninvited get these pictures Mm. and or they hear a car backfiring and it reminds Mm. them of a gunshot. Or Or a door slamming Mm. or anything Mm. that anything that's similar enough to the previous experience. Our minds very quickly make those associations and connect and if we if we remember that what's happening on that most primitive level is and the the fastest level in our brain is that taking in of information and very quickly making connections with our previous experience Mm. without the benefit of our our cortex telling us no no that's not that's not the same that's That happened back then. That happened back then. Mm. That's not the same experience as what you're having now. So so tell me about um, how when someone gets a flashback, they can just be like transported straight back there and and be overwhelmed all over again Mm. and feel like it's the here and now and not being able to... Mm. What can happen is that we can become quite sensitised, right? So the most subtle sensory experience can be similar enough with the traumatic experience, that it triggers the response that our system had when we experienced the trauma. Mm. So we are transported in a fraction of a second Mm. back into that experience. And all of the responses in our system that were present then are present now, Mm. as if it is happening all over again. Wow. Because our primitive brain structures don't tell the time, there is no sense of that was then and this is now, that was there and this is here. There's no sense of that. It's all compressed into the same experience. It's all happening right now. There is no there and then, it's only now. Mm. So someone who, for example, has been to war could be standing with supermarket bags in the car park, hear a backfiring car, and feel the same terror that they felt. And be transported to that war zone. Wow. And 
because that primitive brain structure has taken over, right, the capacity to realize what has happened, the capacity to, to get perspective, to engage that those higher cortical functions is slowed down. They'll get there eventually, but it might be five or 10 or 20 minutes before mm. the intensity of that terror response subsides and then I'm able to think, get more perspective on where I am and, and what that was. It was always when I was driving and I'd, I guess, have a flashback, a memory of it. It would be so overwhelming that it would just bring me to tears like straight away. So it'd be like a f- actual physical reaction. There's not much in life that can actually, at a drop of a pin, bring you that that low instantly. Yeah. Your poor body. It's just like, oh shock it kind of feels like you're having you're getting shocked again and again each time you'd sort of have it Mm. and I'd sit there and I'd say to myself oh he's fine like why why am I putting myself through this you know so if recalling a traumatic event or having a flashback of it causes us to be terrified all over again what hope is there for processing the event in a helpful way How can we integrate that horrific experience into the story of our lives? I put this question to Nettie. That processing can be really hard. Mm. So what we know is that the methods of trauma therapy that that have and do involve reliving the trauma can be re-traumatizing if those experiences are overwhelming. But if we can in manageable doses, build our, our capacity and our resilience to revisit that experience, mm. then we do have the opportunity to process it and work through it. Mm. But it is a painstaking and time-consuming process. Mm. Nettie will expand on trauma therapy a bit later, but right now I'd like you to meet Preston. As soon as I pinned a microphone on Preston and put my headphones on, I was quite taken by his dulcet tones. You get a great voice. Ah, thanks, mate. Ooh, hello. (laughs) You might have the best voice I've had in this podcast. That's great. I met Preston back in 2009 at the first night of an acting class I took. A group of about 20 of us got together once a week, sometimes more, for two years. We yelled at each other, we laughed, we cried, and actually we grew quite close. But then class finished and we went our separate ways. That was until a couple of months ago when Preston moved into my street. I'm glad I'm sitting here doing this with you. And the reason that I wanted to do this was because it's you. Because when you... (laughs) You haven't let me... I haven't finished yet. Oh, right. When I met you, you, I was was just a horrible person. And I remember thinking that you must think that. Huh, interesting. And that... So I really enjoyed seeing you huh. again because I thought, oh, I'm a different person now because I really respected you yeah. and I liked what you stood for. And I'd, I'd lo- I don't remember any like unkindness or meanness. You do seem more centred now and you do seem more present. And actually there's kind of like, when I've talked to you, you've seemed interested in me, which I was like, I don't think I would have got that from you then. No. After we were done with reminiscing, I asked Preston to tell me a little bit about himself and things didn't stay light and fluffy for long. I'm 49 years old, and I would say from, from maybe the age of 12, I've been really unhappy until maybe my mid-40s. Wow. And I have 
been on a journey for the last five or six years of discovery and therapy and trying to understand myself. So maybe just to set the scene a little bit, can you tell me what kind of kid you were? That's not an easy thing to answer because I don't know, because I disassociated so much. The kid I pretended to be was really happy. To quote my mother, I was a really loving, for a while, I was a really loving, sensitive, engaging, outgoing, extroverted, intelligent child. Hmm. I was. And then I was hurt and broken and hated authority and didn't want to listen to anyone and disrespectful. Hmm. But I was hurt. Hmm. And it, the biggest cliche of all, and for these conversations, I think, is hurt people hurt people. But it's so true. Yeah. That was my life. I ran around hurting everyone. As you're probably gathering, Preston's trauma happened when he was a child. So let's get a story from the beginning. I was born in Christchurch in the early 70s. My mum came from a really big Catholic family, and she married my father, who was not a good man. And I had two old... I had two older siblings, and we grew up in farms around Christchurch. We moved a lot because of the the man my father was, and we left him, my mother left him by the time before I was three, and we moved up to Auckland. He was a, all the bad things that an Irishman can be, I guess. He was a drunk, he was a pedophile, he molested my brother and I, he molested other people. Mm. He was also an incredible, as I know him, as he got older, just a liar. He'd lie about his life, he'd lie about us. When we went to visit him, he'd tell people stories about us. Mm. So we left and we moved to Auckland, but we kept, we visited him. We went on holidays to visit him and the abuse continued. This is the hard, this is the bit that's hard for me to talk about. Not because I don't want to share it, but because I don't know. I blocked it all out. I blocked out, I don't remember maybe 10 years of my childhood. I really don't. I remember specific things about the places that he was at, and I remember them in a way that talking to a therapist, I remember them so vividly in just scenes, in their bedroom scenes. Like I remember the bed, I remember the wallpaper, I remember being in bed with him and being under the age of 10. And But I don't remember other things. Mm. And I know my brother remembered much more. He was older. Uh, he has later on committed suicide. I myself tried to commit suicide and a dog found me. And that was the beginning. That was 2005, hmm. about seven years after I'd lost my brother. So that's, I grew, that's how I grew up. But I don't remember. I don't. Hmm. I remember... Um, how unhealthy I was sexually, and I know that was. I remember how unhealthy my brother and I were sexually growing up, mm. but I didn't know you don't. I didn't know any different. Um, I thought we didn't see him for ten years, mm. and then when I found out that we had holidays, I, I now I remember them, but I didn't remember. I thought I never saw him again until I was gone. a fully forged, grown adult, like all erased. gone, 
all gone. Wow. It took me a long time to accept that. And it took me a, three therapists looking at me going, that's what you do. That's what people do. Uh. That's how you survive. Uh. And I, but the thing is, I don't need to know. No. I really no, you don't. don't. You, uh, you probably don't really want to. Well, I, I would like to. Like, remember. I mean, no. <laughs> <laughs> you'd like to. You'd like for it not to just be something someone else is telling you you've been through. Yeah. Yeah, I think I would feel. I've never really felt angry at him. Never. What? How's that possible? Because all I ever wanted was him, for him to love me. When did it stop? When did what stop? The abuse. I think the age of 12 pops to mind. Now, at, at 12, I can remember my brother beating me up because we'd had to come back on a plane from visiting him because mm. my, father, my brother had rung up. And this is the first I ever knew. And I knew that we'd gone home because he was touching my brother. I knew that's why we'd gone home. And I think that my mother didn't know what she didn't know. And I think she knew then because he told her. He rang and said, this is happening. You need to, I need to come home. Hmm. So from that age, we didn't see him until I was a, maybe in my late teens, 20. Hmm. So when it was happening, he was good at hiding it. Well, nobody knew. People loved him. Mac, he was uh, incredibly charming, full Blarney Stone gift of the gab, very good looking, um, very talented horseman. Hmm. People loved him. Everywhere I went, people loved him. But an absolute, and I fought my whole life to not be this guy, but an absolute con man. Hmm. When he died, his partner was an 18-year-old ex-con, and he would have been 70. He was not a healthy man. When did he die? When I started sleeping. <laughs> he died the night I went to see uh, Wicked, the musical. Yeah. Have you seen that? No. Do you know it? The, yes, I know of it. And I got a phone call on the way from my sister. And I walked in and we were late. And I told my partner and I went to the bar and I, because he was an Irishman, I got a shot of Jamison's to, to go, what the fuck? Yeah. So I had a shot of that, and then I walked in and I sat down, and the opening song is Nobody Mourns the Wicked. Wow. Wow. So, yeah, I, I think maybe around 2010, 12 even. And you kind of jokingly said that's when you started sleeping. It would almost suggest that while he was still alive, there was a part uh, of that you. That I wasn't safe. That's absolutely what it suggests. And that's a, that is how hugely deep-seated is that? But it make, I mean, it makes sense that you're not, uh, uh, anyone who's a, in a victim, perpetrator victim situation, you're, you're, a vic, you're not safe until that person's gone. Mm. So it makes sense. Obviously, Preston's experience has been really intense. And I was intentional about talking to someone who has experienced significant trauma in their childhood. Because trauma that happens when we're still forming who we are affects us in an especially deep way. And our minds have to engage some pretty extreme tactics to get us through those experiences. Preston will describe those more in a minute. But here's Nettie again describing another cluster of experiences that are typical of PTSD. And this time, it's avoidance. Which include things like altering or changing the way that I live my life so that I'm not exposed 
to things that are distressing mm. and triggering. Mm. So it might mean that, say, that supermarket car park where there was a backfiring car, if I'm going to avoid any risk of being exposed to that kind of trigger, I might decide to not go to the supermarket anymore. Mm. Avoidance can also involve distancing ourselves from people, disengaging with life, and therefore reducing risk. Mm. And another way that we disconnect or disengage is by dissociation. So what's dissociating? Dissociation or dissociating is when we distance ourselves from something that's distressing. And we do it naturally as part of our everyday life. We dissociate when we daydream. We dissociate when we cover our eyes, when there's something in front of us that we don't want to look at. You know, We disconnect ourselves from what's happening in our external world and retreat to our internal world. Mm. We do it when we put our fingers in our ears and go, la, 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 la. I don't want to know. I don't want to see. I don't want to engage. I don't want to be confronted with that. So we do it as a, a natural way of protecting ourselves from distress. Mm. But when the stress or distress is extreme, we may retreat further and further or deeper and deeper into that disconnected state mm. and become more profoundly disconnected from reality, mm. from the external world. So people will talk about losing chunks of time mm. because they have retreated and disconnected from the world and there are chunks of time that they can't remember, they can't account for. And, it, and it's at its most profound, it's really disorienting and really distressing. I bet, yeah. Is that also, you know, I've heard people talk about like feeling like they're not in their own body. Yeah. Is that dissociation? Yeah, it can be. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But it's, it's a really interesting shutting down. It's extraordinarily defensive mm. in that it's a way of coping with something that I can't otherwise escape. Mm. And that's the thing about dissociation. That's the, the faint response as opposed to the fight or flee. Mm. I can't do anything, so I'm just going to play dead. Mm. And it's not a playing dead. It's actually everything shutting down as if I were dead because there's nothing I can do. I'm just going to have to cut off so that I can endure this thing that I'm going through because mm. I can't do anything else. Mm. I've just got to get through it. And that same shutting down, that same dissociation that may have happened at the time of the traumatic event can then repeatedly happen. Yes, yeah. You know. And it can happen in response to a trigger that might not on the surface of it have looked like it has that much to do with the original trauma. Mm. But on some level, there's some kind of association that can trigger that need to disconnect. When it was happening, what was your way of coping with it? Obviously disassociating. What do you mean by disassociating? Well, I guess if something's too hard, you run away. So if you run away in your brain, it's so scary to think about. If you run away in your brain, somebody has to be there. You can't run away. Hmm. So you leave someone behind who can deal with it. I guess a part of you runs away and whoever's left behind has to deal with it. Mm. 
they are swallowing all your trauma. Mm. And until you deal with them or make peace with them or make peace with your trauma, they are representing you as a five, seven, whatever year old boy being hurt in a bedroom. Mm. So they're not going to be good at helping a 49 year old man get through the world. Right? So I believe the guy in the room is the part, the part that stopped me ever really caring, really investing in a relationship, really trying to be, because they're just going to hurt me. Mm. So I'm listening to a seven-year-old's advice. Don't do that. This is bad mm. because we can get hurt. And what did you do for all the years afterwards? What do you think you did with the seven-year-old boy who was in the room? I silenced, I, don't, I drank and did drugs, mate. Mm. I drank and I did drugs. And I buried him. I really did. And I, what I didn't do was listen to him, because that's what I'm doing now. I'm be, getting comfortable with being able to talk to different parts. My therapist says, and how do you feel now? And I'll explain it, and she'll say, and which part of you is feeling that way? And, and you realise that there's two parts of you. There's two truths. I shut him away. I shut him away, I would have to say, so that I never had to think about it. Mm. That's what I did. I locked him in a fucking room. And he wasn't happy. I've been fake happy my whole life. Mm. And now I'm sober, I don't do drugs. My integrity's really good. I'm starting to treat other people well. Mm. And that is giving me a sense of happiness. I'm happy. And I'm 40 fucking nine, Mick, and I was unhappy for f at least 45 years. Because mm. I hated myself, but I didn't know I did. Mm. It's so, PTSD is so brutal. Yeah. You're just broken in so many ways after experience like that, I guess. Yeah, and the only my only ever understanding of PTSD was I just thought of guys who go to war. Because, you know, as tough as we ever did it, I always thought our grandparents who stuffed guts back inside their mates and mm. tried to hold them together while they mm. were screaming. Yeah. That's post-traumatic stress disorder. Yeah. But so is this. Absolutely. Um, people often obviously experience flashbacks when it comes to trauma. Did you I have can, that? I cannot. Uh, I can only remember the room. Mm. The only, f and I don't, because I don't think I've had a flashback, I don't, can't. I'm imagining what you see on a Hollywood film when there's a flashback, you know? <laughs> yeah. Like it's a big thing and you're there. Yeah. The thing that lets me know that it was me being molested and not just my brother was I can tell you what the wallpaper looked like in the room. I can tell you the colour of the sheets. I can tell you how the sheets felt. I can tell you that I could smell beer and tobacco. Hmm. I, this, all of that, it's so... And that is vivid, that is like a flashback. Mm. That is more vivid than other memories because other memories are just thoughts that you're having. It's not a picture. This mm. is a fucking picture. Mm. Are you, it doesn't really sound like this, but are you kind of drawn back to that moment? Or have you been when that picture's entered your head or it's not no. really like that? Right? No, because, oh, you mean you when it You kind of erased it, it anyway, right? No, yeah, because it's erased anyway. It, it's, 
Well, it's not a race that's just, um, he protected me from it. Somebody took the fucking bullet, man. The the seven-year-old you that was in the room protected you from it? Pro he took the bullet. Mm. Where is he now? He gets to come out. This is the whole bit that's so hard to, like I was saying, because you just sound like somebody with multiple personality disorder, mm. but you have to embrace it as a disassociating, you have to embrace it. Um, I need to feel sad for him. Mm. I need to feel angry for him. Mm. I need to do, there's still things I think I need to do for him to make me happy, but he gets to speak now. You know, like I, I might be having a conversation like this with my therapist and she'll say, so what does young you mm. think about this? Mm. And I'm like, I don't know. And she'll be like, well, just ask him. Mm. And it's a really bizarre little, cause it's not a different voice or, but it's just, you know, I know, I know there's a me that is really loving and really kind and just bursts into tears, terrified. Like my whole life I've been terrified of crying. Hmm. My whole life at my brother's wake. Um, and I got up to speak and I got up there and I opened my mouth and my, I can feel it now. My legs just dropped. Hmm. They gave way and I dropped to the ground and I had no idea. Hmm. And I jumped back up again and I made a joke and I walked and sat down. Wow. And that is the problem, probably the closest I ever came to crying hmm. until the last couple of years. It's that little boy that gets, that comes out and he's the one who cries. Hmm. So he will cry in front of my partner in therapy and say, I'm sorry hmm. and ask for help hmm. and say, I'm scared to love you because I can't imagine why anyone would ever love me because I'm not a good person. Hmm. That's him. You know what I can't see? What's that? I can't see a man on television physically loving his son without waiting for it to turn into a horror scene. Mm. I cannot. I'm just waiting for it to be a, a movie about child molestation. That's what I'm every single fucking time. Mm. Beautiful, whatever those words are for, you know, Hallmark, American, PG. Yeah. You know, that's what I'm waiting for. Mm. I can't see that without. Wow. And feeling sick. Mm. They did this research where they got kids who had been traumatized and kids who hadn't, and they showed them a mechanic working under a car that that was on a jack, and like mo like nearly all the kids that have been traumatized just okay the car's going to fall his head's going to explode there's going to be bloody like there's just oh, fuck, that's so sad and eh? all the other kids were like oh he's fixing the motor and then he's going to drive away really happily you know. But that's kind of what you're talking about. That's my life. That's mm. my whole life. We're swinging back to Nettie again now, who's about to tell us about another common PTSD experience called hypervigilance. Being extraordinarily on guard, which means that I'm going to be much more jumpy, I'm going to be much more reactive, I'm going to be much more anxious, I'm going to be much more sensitive to any hint, which then of course means that I'm that much more wired and that much more likely to get triggered. Mm. So it's, it's kind of compounding sometimes. Mm. So that, but that hypervigilance can also be really exhausting because it interferes with the sleep and it interferes with our capacity to relax, wind down and be calm. And mm. then that has consequences and implications for being able to think clearly and concentrate and be creative. All of that stuff. I'm waiting, hoping for you to ask about the um, being aware of everything around you. 
because my whole life has been meerkatting. Oh, tell me about that. I know who's a threat in the room, who's a predator, who's prey, who's holding what, how big they are, whether they can hurt me, whether they can hurt anyone else in the room, what my chances of survival are. Wow. Every room I'm in. Wow. For my whole life. So just hyper-vigilant to danger. To danger. And just scope. Not just mine, but everybody's. I know when a fight's going to break out or when an argument's going to break out or when somebody's going on home unhappy, but they're pretending they are. Mm. You know, I'm not saying I have some great superpower, but it's just mm. because I have to, to survive. I have to know where the threat's coming from. Mm. I, I guess because I never knew where it was coming from. Mm. I have to know. Mm. I hate being in a big room. The, the bigger yeah. they are, the more people that are in there, the more work there is to do to figure out who everyone is and where they all sit in this hierarchy of who can hurt me and who can't. It's exhausting. It sounds to me like when you're in a room, when you've been in a room and you're, and you're meerkatting and you're looking for dangers, you're not just looking for what could be dangerous to you, you're actually looking for what could be dangerous to other people to as well. To everyone. So it sounds like in your heart you're a really caring guy. It's really hard for me to say this, but in my heart I'm a really fucking caring guy. That's all I... What comes up when I think that is because I've done so many, so much uncaring stuff. Mm. I've hurt so many. I've hurt everyone who loved me, every single partner I've had. And I've had some amazing, uh, like really loving, great, not hurt, not damaged people in my life that I've totally blindsided. And I've reached out to all of them in the last few years. Mm. Some of them don't want to talk to me, but I, I want to say, I gaslit you, because I think that's one of the worst things I've ever done. I pretended like, no, I'm not on drugs and I'm not cheating on you, you're crazy. Mm. I did that to so many people. Mm. It's horrible. So it's really hard for me to say I'm a really good person. But in saying that, for the last couple of years, I, what I've found I do now is I create villages for people. What do you mean? I have a dog park group. I have a, a motorcycle club. Yeah. Because I'm realising how important that support network is. Mm. Like I created the motorbike club to give myself better role models. Mm. I needed better role models. Another way PTSD can affect us has to do with our mood. So the grief and loss and depression and all that kind of stuff that's part of having experienced a trauma. A trauma is a loss at the end of the day of some something, whether we actually lose somebody in that experience, and that may, they, that may not be the case, but we might lose a sense of safety or we might lose a sense of freedom or, or we might lose a sense of innocence. Or, mm. But there, there's a loss, so there's a, a whole emotional reaction that comes with that. And sometimes with PTSD too, you get a shift in the way a person sees themselves and others. And it, and it kind of comes in with that mood and emotional stuff, but it's that sense of being bad or wrong or in this shame and guilt that gets tied up with that as mm. well. Mm. When we feel that dysregulated, humans will try however they can to address that dysregulation. And that's where, say with PTSD, you do get a lot of addictive behaviours because we will utilise whatever strategy we can to try to address the dysregulation. 
Is that kind of like another way of saying kind of numb the feelings? Not just numb it, but soothe, soothe perhaps. Mm. And it might be, it's a way of bringing things back into the bearable. So if, I've, if I experience a certain level of distress and my capacity to tolerate it exceeds that, mm. then I'm okay. But if my capacity to tolerate the distress is less than the distress, then I either have to do something to bring the distress down or I have to do something to bring my, my resources up, my capacity up. And what do people often turn to to bring the distress down? It could be going for a run or going for a walk. Those are enormously regulating and powerful kind of experiences that might be writing, uh, playing music, drawing, spending time with other people. Social connection can be a way of bringing that distress down. Unfortunately for many people, the effective strategy that they've found can be more destructive and it can involve self-harm, it can involve addiction, drugs and alcohol or shopping or, or gaming or pornography or, or whatever the range of addictive behaviours might be. And in doing so, reducing the intensity of the distress to a level that is bearable. Mm. What does treating or, or, or finding healing from PTSD look like? In terms of a sort of overall view, it's about being able to make sense of what I've been through and, and integrate it into my story. Perhaps construct or tell a, a new and probably somewhat different story about myself and my life. And if I think about that, that analogy of there being an earthquake and my whole house has fallen down, it's a, it's a process of rebuilding, of sifting through and reshaping myself and my world and how I'm going to then live. I think that it's an enormously hopeful experience, actually, because I think that the capacity for humans to, to process and to heal is, is awe-inspiring. It's actually mm. a beautiful and privileged thing to be able to witness and be a part of. Mm. Like any of the struggles that human beings have, we have a capacity to be enormously malleable and come through it in ways kind of enhanced better um, than we were before. Mm. I mean, the thing is that being able to work through some of that trauma in itself helps us build resilience, helps us build the piece by piece, the capacity to be flexible and strong. To, we, we're building and developing strength in the process of that healing. I knew it was a really heavy impact on me and I knew the importance for myself of healing from this because I feel if things are left alone and haven't been dealt with, then we can come unstuck. So I actually went to a psychologist to really just debrief and 
really, I just was paying for a big old cry session, which um, was totally worth the money because that's what I needed. You know, I just needed to, to, I guess, talk to someone who is completely impartial, who also had knowledge of how our brains work and how we can be kind to ourselves and, and you know, sort of help heal the damage that's being done because it's not just our memories that get affected. Like there's so many physical reactions that happen as well. And when your body is put under that stress and shock, you know, yeah, you've got to come down from that. So I didn't rush anything with how I was feeling because I think that's important. But then I got myself to a point of, you know, I'm okay to not be thinking of this all the time mm. and, and I really don't want to. So I just started something that had served me well in the past, which was just visualizations. Mm -hmm. So I, every time the memory of the accident would pop into my head, I'd picture putting that thought into a ball and then getting like a cricket bat and just whacking it as hard and as far away as I could mm. and I tell you what that's all I needed it was really bizarre it was like I was retraining my mind that it wasn't about the memory anymore it was about I was actually this action of putting it in a ball and then whacking it away instead of allowing my mind to even take me on that journey for three minutes it became this literal quick action and it was like, see you later. You're not serving me. You're mm. gone. Mm. And after doing that, I realized that the period of time in between the thoughts or memories became larger and then the gravity of it became softer. Right. It was more manageable. And what works for me doesn't necessarily work for the next person, but I found my tool that, yeah, I'm going to handle it this way and heal. Mm. And, like, I don't think it will ever sit well with me. I don't think it's ever going to be easy to talk about, but if I can let it not have control, I guess. That's my goal. Visualization has become a really useful tool for Antonia in managing the feelings that come up for her when her son's accident revisits her. But as she mentions, the same tool might not be the right one for you if, like Preston, your trauma happened over a period of years as a child. What role does shame play in this whole story? Shame is my suicide. Shame is... Fuck. Shame is that when I thought I was going to get, when I'd gone too far and I was scared that everyone was, or everyone was going to find out in Sydney, I went to a park and I killed myself mm. over them finding out. Mm. Because of the shame of them knowing. Because I, it would have been harder to live with all of them. Not, I thought at the time. Mm. Mm. And I killed myself and it didn't work. And everybody came to help me. And that was fucking hard to believe. I remember a chef I worked with in Australia came in the room and just burst into tears and I couldn't believe that there was someone sitting there crying for me. Hmm. I thought that'll be really angry. 
so it seems to me that the guy sitting in front of me is is like a well-rounded man with integrity and with more balance yeah who cares for people yeah um how has that come to pass like how have you found healing the man sitting in front of you is very new Mm. I'm better than I was a week ago and I'm better than I was a month ago Mm. um my dog died I always I've had dogs and I fucking love them I love them Mm. and I'm present with them and I'm engaged with them and they love me and I love them and they're not going to leave me and they're not going to hurt me Mm. and then my partner went away and I felt really abandoned I wasn't abandoned she just left the country to do some work and I ran to what I know and I gambled and I drank and I lied to her about it and I lied and I lied and then the little boy in me is screaming just fucking tell her the truth and get some help she just kept saying tell me the truth and then I did and she didn't leave me I offered I'll get some help I'll go to an AA meeting and I went and from the day I walked into that room, I have not had a drink. Wow. Now, what stopping drinking did for me was took away the last barrier from connecting to how I felt. Because whether you're an alcoholic or not, everybody who drinks, drinking is an escape. Friday afternoon is the perfect example. You, don't have, you have a wine to escape your week. You go home, you have a wine to escape your day. You have a drink to escape your boss being a dick. So if every time something's hard, I would either take a pill do a drug or have a drink. I disconnected from all those feelings for so much time in therapy. How do you feel about that? I have no idea was my most common answer. I have no idea. If you don't know how you're feeling, you can't fix anything. Yeah. Right? I mean, it's that simple. Mm. So I started doing that and what that led me to is knowing who I am. And obviously you've referenced therapy quite a lot. With your struggles that have related to the trauma, you know, the sexual trauma. Yep. How specifically has therapy helped with that? My trauma stopped me being able to communicate, being able to feel, and being able to trust and love. Mm. Therapy is teaching me how to do those four things. Mm. And I am now, well, how I'm growing in therapy, I never imagined I'd be able to be this person. You're obviously a therapist and have no doubt worked with quite a few clients who have experienced trauma the effects of trauma and the ongoing PTSD. When you've worked with those clients, what has healing from trauma looked like? Mm. So a big part of trauma therapy is about creating safety and holding a space and, and allowing a person to connect with another human being in a way that, that builds and fosters that capacity to regulate. Mm to find relief, to find ways of managing the distress, to find ways of soothing that that upheaval. And that's that's kind of that's crucial. And and for some people that will be that will be quite complicated work, especially if that trauma that they experienced was when they were very, very young and they perhaps didn't have the capacity or the ability to do that Mm. but that regulation is the is the necessary foundation for anything else to be done and a big part of that is acknowledging 
and validating what somebody's feeling and going through. People come through this kind of stuff going, what's wrong with me that I'm so messed up and that I'm so broken? Mm -hmm. And there's an awful lot of shame and anxiety and self-recrimination and that kind of stuff. So so normalising and saying, of course you feel that way. No wonder, Mm -hmm. given what you've been through. And for them to be able to also respond to themselves in that compassion. So being able to to develop that capacity to regulate then allows me to be able to do the processing. Mm. And in that process makes sense of what I've been through. Mm. And what about that person we talked about earlier who has had a traumatic experience and they re-experience it in the form of flashbacks Mm. and those flashbacks are overwhelming and the terror is experienced all over again as if it's happening right now. How do you get through that? It is, it's, it's actually really tricky because the, the risk of re-traumatizing is very real. And so it's a process that we approach with real caution. So I work with people on developing the capacity for grounding so that they can build tools that help them stay connected to the here and now, Mm. that they can draw on at times when it feels like the here and now is slipping away. Mm. I do a fair bit of helping somebody understand that what they're going through makes sense that's reassuring in itself and it also gives me a framework then to hold on to when the feelings are threatening to be overwhelming Mm. and I think that this work is also something that needs to be done people have used the word dosing you know you want to be able to only bite off as much as you can actually chew in Mm. the moment and for some initially it may be only a couple of seconds of revisiting a trauma that is bearable. Mm. So a little a little visit to it and then stepping back from it. Mm. And being able to do that in manageable doses is what builds the resilience and the capacity to then be able to do a little bit more. Mm. So there's almost like this kind of dance happening between the fortification of their resources around mm self-soothing mm. and managing feelings with the processing of Absolutely. traumatic yep. experiences. Yeah, mm. yeah. There's a story I heard once that illustrated the power of the here and now. It's a story told by an American trauma therapist called Louis Cozzolino. And he spoke of a man who had had quite a lot of therapy for early childhood trauma And the trauma that he'd experienced was having been shut into a box as a very small child. It was horrific, terrible. And the trauma therapy that he had experienced involved reliving that trauma. And the idea being that if I can relive it, I can desensitize to it. And yet what he was finding was that his flashbacks and his nightmares were only getting worse. That each time he went to therapy and relived the trauma, it was more traumatic. Mm. And he contacted Louis Cozzolino and 
only ended up having one session, I think. But when he turned up, almost immediately the flashback started, like even entering a therapist's room was enough mm. by that stage to trigger the flashback. Mm. And he, he curled up on the floor in a fetal position as if he were in the box. And Cosolino talks about being there with him in this experience. And he was there and he kept on saying to this man, you're having a memory, you're having a flashback. What you're experiencing is not happening now. This is where we are now. You're in my office. It's this date, it's this day. And he just kept on saying those things. Mm. The session finished and the man went away and Cosalina didn't see him again, but later got a letter from this man saying, I still have those flashbacks, but now your voice is also there saying, this is a memory that you're reliving. This is not happening now, mm. which was actually an enormous comfort. How about blame? Did you find yourself blaming yourself or others? I've never blamed my mother. I've never blamed my brother. I grew up with us sexually acting out on each other. Mm. I never blamed him for that. I never blamed my father because until I started doing the work, I never knew there was anything to blame him for. But when he died, at his, after he died, his sister, who was lovely, my auntie, I, I really, I, she's, she's great, she told me that their father had molested all seven of them. Right. So that uh, was another reason not to blame him. Because hmm. he's just another broken animal. Hmm. I'm the cycle breaker. Oh, yeah. yeah. For that reason, I'm quite late in my life. I really want to have kids <laughs> because then I am the cycle breaker because yeah. I won't do it to them. But I don't have kids. I'm just somebody who didn't do it to anyone else's kids. Hmm. Where has hope come from for you? Hope, and I'm scared to say it because I'm not quite right there yet. But hope has come from feeling like I deserve more. So there was no hope when I thought I needed to be hurt and punished and didn't, shouldn't have people who cared about me or sh and shouldn't be happy. And as soon as I started thinking, maybe that's okay for me, then there was hope. It's good, man. It's good. I'm going to ask my last question. Are you mental? Are you mental? <laughs> Good. <laughs> you didn't answer. <laughs> you clearly are. <laughs> no, that's not it. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so, if someone's listening to this conversation and they've experienced something similar to you and it's still haunting them, it's still robbing them of, of their chance to live their life and live it well. What would you want to say to them? Oh, fuck. Really, I just want to say I'm sorry. Really, I don't know what to say. I want to say, take out all the things that are stopping you from connecting to people or feeling like you are loved and go and talk to someone. You need to talk to someone. You need to talk to someone who won't judge you. You need to talk to someone that you're not going to feel ashamed in front of. I, could, I would say get some help. Why? 
I guess because I think you're unhappy and you don't have to be. I would want to say that whatever you've been through, whatever you've struggled with, there is always hope. Um, wow. What would I want to say? I just want to say, can you feel my heart? <laughs> can you feel my heart for you? You know, there's, there's every hope for recovery that no matter what we've been through, it's amazing actually what humans go through and come through stronger and wiser and more whole. And it's scary and it's frightening and it's daunting and it's, it's only natural to want to go, no, nah, don't want to go there, that just seems too hard, that just seems too overwhelming. But there is hope for recovery, yeah, there really is. There really is hope for recovery. The human spirit is an extraordinary thing. Mm. I'd like to say a massive thank you to Antonia and Preston for being so open with their stories. If this episode has brought anything up for you and you'd like to speak to someone, you can find local helplines at checkpointorg.com global. As I said at the beginning, there are a lot more layers to trauma than what we covered today. And one thing we haven't had time to cover is the link between trauma and our body. Research over the past couple of decades has discovered that trauma often lodges itself in our body in a way our minds don't really understand. And in these cases, many people have found things like yoga to be a really effective form of treatment. A great book about all this is called The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk. Another quite strange therapy that has been enjoying success in the treatment of PTSD is called EMDR, which stands for Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprocessing. During EMDR, someone safely recalls certain aspects of a traumatic event while they follow a therapist's finger from side to side with their eyes. I know it's a little bit odd, but the study results have been quite impressive. And of course, there are many other treatments that are proving effective with PTSD, many of which focus on giving someone the resources to recall a traumatic event without getting overwhelmed, allowing them to finally file the memory away and integrate the event into the story of their life. I'd like to thank everyone who helped make this episode possible. Please rate and review the show, stay tuned for the next episode, and until then, have a mental week.